This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sean Wilson, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited about this conversation for lots of reasons, but one, because we met recently in Melbourne. Yeah, that was lovely. What a great night that was in was um, Carlton for dinner. It was magical. Yeah, it was really fun. Do you know, uh, when we organised that dinner, and for all the listeners, um, Jane and I were in Melbourne and we thought, oh, what the heck, let's have dinner with a few authors. And we thought maybe if we invited 20, maybe 10 would show up. That's what we thought. Well, we invited 20 and I think 21 showed up. Yeah, yeah. If you invite people out for a nice dinner in Melbourne, they're going to turn up. That's, they're going to that's turn what up. we do. Yeah. yeah, and it was a great night. Sean is a writer, playwright and communications professional from Perth. His short stories have been published in Australian and international journals, anthologies and literary magazines, including Island and Narrative. And he was previously shortlisted for the Patrick White Playwrights Award by the Sydney Theatre Company. Wow, wow. The book we're talking about today, it's uh, his first book. Uh, It's a novel. It's called Gemini Falls, and it's set in Depression-era Melbourne and a small town in Victoria that is searching for a killer. I mean, wow, that's a big transition, isn't it? Place to books, yeah, but it's definitely something that I've always wanted to do is write a novel. I just kind of didn't believe in myself that I could write a story, write a story that long um, and keep the thread going for as long as a novel until I'd written a few plays. And then I just, I looked at the word count of those plays and I thought that's enough to uh, fill a novel. And so, yeah, and then I think developing stories within plays as well gives you the confidence, I think, or gave me the confidence to um, develop a story within a novel. So I think I had to step up to get to the point of a novel for me. Do you know, that's a really interesting subject because only recently I was talking to a literary publisher, a friend of mine, and uh, we were talking about she's got an author who's going to deliver next year. And she said something about like, I think it's only 30,000 words or 40,000 words. And I said, wow, is that a novella now? And like, is that, well, how do we classify that? And she said, you know, there is a conversation that a lot of fiction is getting shorter. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that too. And I think maybe if I can just hypothesise it's because our attention spans are maybe getting shorter just generally um, because of the influence of the internet and um, the short kind of grab and scroll media. Uh, maybe we're just naturally moving towards shorter pieces. In yeah, maybe. Yeah. Although I've always, I've always loved short stories. I mean, once I read my first Raymond Carver, that was it. Oh, you know? Raymond Carver. Yeah, he's yeah. one of my favourites. Yeah, um, I think yeah. I've read everything he ever wrote. He's just same. Um, he's lovely. Yeah, and then when I read On Chesil Beach, the McEwen, I thought you don't need a lot of words. 
Yeah, and I think there's a place for small stories and there's a place for really long stories as well. It's nice yeah. that we're in a place where we can, um, I think, have a place for all of those things. Uh, yeah. And I feel like short stories are making a bit of a comeback at the moment as well, which is nice. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, so tell me how it all started. So you grew up in Perth. Let's start there. Yeah, I uh, grew up in Perth, sort of on the outer suburbs of Perth. My parents say when... They bought the house. It was right on the edge of town and there were kangaroos hopping down the street. It was oh, wow. it was that far out of town. Um, but you probably know Perth is um, quite a urban sprawl now, so it's, it's definitely not the edge of town now. But growing up, it very much felt like we were on the edge of the city. And I think that gives you a sense of wanting to explore a little bit. I think when you kind of on the edge of the bush and you've got um, not a lot around, you know, culturally there wasn't a lot around. There was um, there was open space and there was sport and there were, there were places to explore, but there wasn't, you know, like I couldn't just go down the street and go to a museum or go see a play or something. And so I think you needed to make your own fun as a kid in that kind of environment. So although I wasn't writing stories as a kid um, per se, I was very much, uh, involved in my imagination a lot with my, myself and my friends. So, and were yeah. you a reader? Yeah, I was. Child? I mean, I, I read the usual kind of things that you would uh, give a boy at at that time. You know, like Robert Louis Stevenson, Treasure Island. Um, I really got into choose your own adventure novels, and maybe that's a little bit because I very early on, um, like a lot of people wanted to decide where the story was going. And so as a writer, you're very much in control of the story and you can tell, um, where the character, tell the characters where to go. And so those stories, I can remember sitting on my bed and sort of having my fingers in between the pages of the different um, narrative options and kind of flicking backwards and forwards and seeing what would happen if different choices were made by characters. So that to me, when I look back is very early on me thinking about narrative and how it progresses and how character choices you know, make changes in the drive of the narrative. Um, um, it, it really is interesting because I was a bookseller, I think, back then, and I was selling those books. And oh, yeah. I was selling them to mothers and, and and carers of young boys mainly that were buying them. Even though they weren't packaged as gender-specific, the attraction was more that young boys wanted that wanted to read them, which is always great because they're usually the reluctant readers. But I, I often used to wonder about that, you know, like is it because back then was girls we just accepted the story and boys <laughs> wanted to maybe. make up their own maybe yeah yeah i guess um in that period perhaps people were raising boys to be a bit more independent in their choices when it, even down to things like narrative and yeah unfortunately that was the market for for those kinds of stories mm, yeah. very popular books then you've you know, off to high school and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Do you know, I really wanted to be a pilot when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> and I was really, I was really into it in, down to the point of joined the Air Force cadets and I, wow. I took flying lessons when I was a kid and wow. went up in gliders and all sorts of things. I was really obsessed with it. And then at a certain point, it just sort of faded for me. Uh, Why? And now I really don't know why. I just um, the attraction, I suppose, just at a certain point 
I couldn't take the next step into becoming a pilot. You know, it's a very difficult profession. There's a lot of training, obviously, and a lot you need to know. And I'd started that as a very young boy and then maybe got a little bit lazy with it and then just couldn't kind of keep up with it and then decided to, you know, it wasn't for me. And now I really don't like flying. You know, I've been up as a kid in the kinds of planes where you can just wind down the window yourself and they're in those little Cessnas uh, and done, you know, loops and stalls and all these aerobatics in, in these tiny planes. And now I'm a little bit afraid of flying. I don't really know what happened to me, but yeah, I did a complete 180 on that. Uh, so that was my big passion when I was a kid. And then I suppose from then on, I was kind of searching for another passion until I read some stories that really kind of appealed to me and reached me. And then I decided, you know, this is something I'm interested in. I want to learn how this is done. Mm-hmm. How to write? Yeah, how to write, yeah. Yeah. So what did you study at university? Uh, I took a business degree at uni. <laughs> I mean. Pilot, business degree. I know. <laughs> and you well, ended was, up in the arts. <laughs> I was, I think I was just really searching and kind of lost in those teenage years of mm-hmm. not really understanding what was available. And very much, you know, I was interested in story and interested in reading, but I never really considered being a writer as a profession. You know, where I grew up, there weren't any people who were writers. There weren't any artists where I grew up. It was kind of working class tradespeople, um, people who had nine to five jobs. There weren't any artists. There wasn't that kind of community. There was, you know, the nearest cultural point was the local library which was great but it wasn't there weren't any writers hanging out in the outer mm. suburban libraries of Perth so it just was not something that I ever considered and you know, my dad was in business he um there were other people around me who were in business it just seemed like you, know, you go and do a business degree you get a office job that's mm. kind of that was and you the, earn a bit of money right yeah and you earn a bit of money as University really to me where the school that I went to, which was a state school, was kind of pitched as this is a way to get a good job. It wasn't mm. this is a way to learn about the world and about people and about art. It was no, this is where you go to get a good job. So when did the penny drop for you in terms of art? Yeah, it was late teens, I suppose. When um, honestly, it was uh, writers like. Jack Kerouac and um, those kinds of beat writers. And I got a little bit interested in the romanticism of inner city life, um, that bohemian kind of lifestyle. I think I was yeah, at that point in my life in the late teens male who grew up in the outer suburbs and where the culture was really um, barbecues and football. I was searching for something else and that's what I kind of latched on to. Mm-hmm. I probably... I don't think I would search for that kind of story now, but that was sort of my stepping stone. And then, you know, um, find out about other works, you know, George Orwell, those kinds of writers, and started to work my way through literature that I started to really develop a strong appreciation of it. And then I don't know what it was that made me decide this is something I want to try. I guess you just mm-hmm. get a compulsion and you, mm-hmm. you either follow it or you don't, and mm-hmm. I did. Mm. So when did you move into the city and when did you move to Melbourne? Uh, Yeah, I first moved uh, out of home. I think I was probably 19 uh, and then moved into inner city Perth, which was um, a step towards that direction, I think, that I was heading. And then I was 20. 
324 when I moved to Melbourne. Mm. Why Melbourne? Well, it was kind of a toss-up between Melbourne and London at the time. That there were people going there or one way or the other. Uh, and I have a British passport because my dad is English. Um, and so that was very much a possibility for me. And I went over to the UK and I met family and I, I traveled around a little bit, but I very quickly ran out of money mm-hmm. and I <laughs> didn't have, you know, other than my family were up in the North in Manchester and around there. And that's not where I wanted to move to. And I didn't know anyone in London and it just seemed a lot harder. I had some family over here in Melbourne. And it just seemed like an easier option mm-hmm. to move to. And I knew, you know, there were quite a few friends who'd moved over here. And so just seems like the easier option honestly that's that's what it came mm. down to it seemed like the most accessible way for me to to try something new and then I just stayed here and I really love it here there's a big I mean you know and I've been to Western Australia and I've been to Perth uh, several times now one of the things that I notice when I get off the plane every single time is how big the sky is and how beautiful there is something quite mesmerizing about WA isn't there yeah, yeah there really is and it's got a brightness that you know is is just gorgeous but it's very very different culturally and even as a sense of place than Victoria or Melbourne so what was your first impression and did you have a time where you're thinking this isn't for me or this is what I was meant to be born into? As soon as I moved over to Melbourne, it felt right to me. Oh, wow. um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was what I was searching for for a while. I mean, Perth is a lovely place and it was a great place mm-hmm. to grow up. But I think what I started to become interested in, there's sort of a limit to how far you can take that, I think, in places like Perth. And especially then now with the um, the internet, it's a lot easier to live in far away places and still connect with people. But this was, I think I moved to Melbourne 2008, you know, the iPhone had only just come out. As it was a mm. different time back then. So it felt like you had to move in order to to reach that culture that you were looking for so yeah it immediately felt right to me once I moved over to Melbourne but um living in Perth growing up in Perth there's very much a us and them kind of attitude it's the eastern states and that's us over here in Perth and I guess the geographical isolation has something to do with that Mm -hmm. I can't remember when I found out the distance between Perth and Sydney is much more than the distance between London and Moscow. You know, like that's the kind of distances we're talking about. And so it does something to the psyche of a community, I think, when you're that isolated from the rest of the country, especially, you know, pre-internet internet we have now, there's a different kind of attitude, I think, when you're growing up in a place like that. And I guess I just defected to the other side. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There is that geographical kind of belonging, I think, that sometimes, you know, people from Western Australia describe it as, you know, it's God's country and nothing else exists and, you know, Melbourne and there's the Melbourne-Sydney thing. I, I mean, I try not to get engaged in any of it. If I'm in Melbourne and a taxi driver asks me where I'm from, I always say Melbourne. I just think I'm not doing the Melbourne-Sydney thing because they're both very, very different and there's so much that I love about Melbourne and there's so much that I love about Sydney. But it's the same in Western Australia. But you know, some people are quite divisive, if you like, about sense of place, really, aren't they? Yeah, isn't that funny? Because not growing up with that Melbourne-Sydney yeah. rivalry, it's just a curiosity to me because I think they're both wonderful places and yeah. I enjoy whenever I can go up to Sydney. It's just so interesting that there's this... Yeah, you want to enjoy the difference, right? Like, you know, this is the reason why I travel. I don't want everyone to be the same. I want Melbourne to be different to Sydney so that when I go there, it's different. I was at a party in Melbourne. This is many years ago. And there was lots of people and there was people were drinking and some guy pulls out this cocktail server. Like it was like a, a coffee table, but it had compartments like, you know, where you put your drinks and your glasses and whatever. Oh. And he said to me, yeah, he said to me, oh gosh, you know, well, well, you'd like it. It's very, very Sydney. I thought, well, I've never seen. <laughs> it's not my Sydney. <laughs> I think Isn't it's it? great and it looks really yeah. practical, but I don't think I've ever seen anyone. And then I thought, wow, even a piece of furniture is maybe is Sydney, Melbourne. It was very strange. Yeah, um, how we, we think we can sum up a city in a couple of words. Like There are so many different Sydneys. There are so many different that's Melbournes. Right. You know, yeah. Even every single suburb is different. The people, um, yeah. there are different people within each suburb. And even inside people, the people are very different and one day to the next. So I think we have this compulsion to sum up things and people and places, but we just really can't and we think we can. Do you know, I really notice this in literature when I'm reading. If an author is Australian and if they're from Sydney, I can even pick in the story whether they're from Western Sydney or whether they're on the coast. Yeah. That's how different those two places are. And they're only within a couple of kilometres of each other. Yeah, and there's a um, you probably know in Melbourne there's this divide between north and south as well, yeah. and and even within those areas there's divides you know amongst um, different suburbs within those areas. So yeah, you you really can't sum up Sydney in just you know a cocktail book. <laughs> a piece of furniture. Okay, so you've done all of this, and when is it? And I've always think this is quite interesting. When is it that a writer becomes a writer? I don't know if I know the answer to that. And I, I think I try and avoid thinking about that too deeply because I don't want to fall in the trap of thinking of myself as a writer first and foremost because I want to think of myself as someone who writes rather than as a writer because I think there's, those are two very different ideas, um, the act so of what- doing the writing and the persona of being a writer. Okay, so when you're filling out your passport card, your entry into Australia, yeah. what, what do you write on that? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't left Australia in a while, so I might have to think about it next time. <laughs> I'm going to come back to you on that one. <laughs> yeah. But okay. I don't know if you know what I mean. Um, I do. Know. 
yeah, there's um, there's a tendency, I think, to attach a lot of prestige to that word, which I find um, a little uncomfortable because it's very much just like a craft, and it's um, it's something that you try and work on and get better at, and and especially with books, so much of the work is done by the reader as well. Once they once they receive the work, they do a lot of the construction of the narrative in their mind. So, yeah, just attaching all the prestige onto the writer and thinking of myself as a writer, I'm a little bit reluctant when it comes to that. Do you know, that's so interesting. I was just chatting with my colleague who you've met, Jane, who, you know, is wonderful, uh, and we were talking about titles because young people tend to get obsessed with them. They want to, you know, they start work and they want the business card already. In there. And yeah. we're just like, oh, we don't know what to call them because we haven't called ourselves anything. So that's happening at the moment for us. And I said to Jane, maybe we should call each other something. And she's like, well, I don't want to be called anything. <laughs> and I was like, isn't that interesting where some people need that structure? They need to be called mm. general manager or they need to be called director or, you know, or writer or whatever. Or like me, I don't, I've never called myself anything, which confuses people, I think. Yeah, it does make it easier for other people. I think if you can sum yourself up in one word, but I don't like it personally. And like you, um, some people I think attach a lot of their selfhood to whatever word they decide on whatever title, but I try and avoid that. Yeah, yeah, same. So what then took you from writing, from being a playwright to writing long form? Was it that you had the idea or was it that you had the urge to write a novel and you had to come up with something? Yeah, for a long time I had the urge to write a novel and I had a couple of starts at it that um, I didn't finish. And it wasn't until um, the play that was shortlisted for that award by Sydney Theatre Company, it wasn't until I got that level of recognition on that story where I thought, you know, this this is obviously something that people are interested in. And I actually turned that play into a novel manuscript, which is um, the one that um, got me an agent and uh, got me the attention of my publisher. While that was sort of being, um, I was working on it with my agent, I started the manuscript that became Gemini Falls because I thought, you know, just let's just keep up the momentum. I've, I've written one novel like manuscript. I want mm-hmm. to, I want to be able to do it again. And so I just jumped right in. I had the story for Gemini Falls while I was working on the other manuscript and I thought I'll just go right in and write another one. So, and we decided that was the one to put out first. So I very quickly, for building up and up and up to it, I very quickly wrote two novel manuscripts um, back to back. Yeah. Yeah. So it is set in the 1930s. Did you, doing research, I guess, for it, was that a new skill for you or was that something that you've been doing as part of your work? Yeah, that level of uh, research for yeah. a period piece was something new and I had to get used yeah. to. There's sort of two things, or at least for me, there were two major things when it came to the research and one was accuracy and making sure yeah. the world was authentic and believable and mm-hmm. timeline was all right. And Because you know, the, the reader sort of notices thing. that. Yeah, and it, mm. it's important, you know, if yeah. you want to, yeah. you want to keep people in the story and not have them sort of slip out of the dream of the story and be critical about those details so it was definitely that part and then the other part was just getting the spirit of the time right you know what people were experiencing and how people behaved and you know all of those fictional elements because it is a fictional story obviously um, but making those fictional characters behave in the way that people would in that period of time and for that fortunately 
that period of time, there's a lot of personal histories that you can research. There's a lot of stories from people who were alive and living in those conditions that you can go into and get a sense of uh, the way people were living. So those are the two kind of drives for the research part of uh, working on the novel. I really like what you just said. I just made a note of that, the dream of the story. I really like that. Do you know, I feel that so many people can be distracted. If, if there's a typo in your book, that breaks that dream, I think. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? I've definitely had that experience where all of a sudden yeah. I realise that I'm reading a book. You know, you want, yeah. to, you want to forget that you're reading a book when you're yeah. really in it. I often wonder about this. When you're writing historical fiction and you're doing the research, you have a responsibility, don't you? You have a responsibility definitely to accuracy, but you also have a responsibility to the character. You do, I think, need to get that so right. And I think that that would be quite challenging. And I wonder as a writer, do you feel that responsibility? Yeah. And especially in this story, because of the time period, the setting, I was driven to write this story because I'd heard about the way my grandparents um, lived during that time and the kind of hardships that they went through. And I did feel a responsibility to faithfully represent how hard life was at that time and to get it right without making it too bleak and sort of have the right blend of light and dark within the story. Because obviously they were there was a lot of suffering and hardship, but people still fell in love. They got married. Yeah. There was, you know, there were still good things that happened then, but just trying my hardest to get that balance right and get the detail right was really important just to represent, you know, what they went through. Yeah, that reminds me, our listeners know this, and I'm sure you do too. I've got a Lebanese background. My parents were Lebanese, and for a long time that country has been war-torn. And in the times that I visited, the first time in particular, astounded at how normal life is and how normal they want it to be. And one of my greatest memories about my first visit is we went out to a restaurant at night um, with my family, and, you know, my parents have got close you know, their brothers and sisters are there. So this close family and we're in this restaurant and they've got the wine out and they've got the, you know, the great food. And in the background, I can hear bombs. Yeah. I, I think I said to my uncle, can you hear that? It's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I was petrified because I yeah. wasn't used to it. But what struck me is life goes on and they're looking for life and normalcy all the time. And you're right. They fall in love. They fall out of love. They have children. They go to parties. They, you know, it's just all people want to do is live. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And, and you get a sense of what people are capable of enduring when you like, Mm -hmm. well, I've never been to a place like that, but I imagine you would have got that sense and thinking about the past and what people have endured and the fact that they went on and they still, they come through that and in the vast majority of cases are still really generous people and they help other people. Mm. They're warm and loving. That's kind of incredible that we're able mm. to uh, to cope with all of that and, and get through the other side. Yeah, mm. that's amazing. It is amazing, yeah. So you finished your first novel and that's that's one story, right? That's one part of it because publishing is another part. Tell me how that worked for you. Yeah, that was very much an eye-opener for me going through the editing process. I guess I didn't, I knew to expect that it would be hard, but once you're in there and you get 
you know, your copy edits back and there's 4,000 revisions to go through. That's something that only you can look at and it's on you to go through that and to try and um, make the right decision. So, yeah, that's that was an interesting process and I learned a lot very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. I had a great structural editor, Martin Hughes, is um, the publisher of the firm, and then um, my copy editor, uh, Ruby, was wonderful. And so I learned a great deal from them in that process. And I think that's really helped me and will help me going forward in my writing from the, you know, the macro level of how to keep the reader's attention going through the story and then down to the sentence level as well. So while it was very hard and it's very hard to do when you're juggling a full-time job as well, it's still uh, it's still a great experience to go through. Well, it is. And I've often, you know, heard conversations where, oh, you know, well, I, I don't think it needs editing, no editing. And I always shake my head because I feel that the, it's the privilege of having all these people trying to make your book better. That's all yeah. it's about, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you have a team of people. Succeed. That's right. Yeah. From the cover design to, you know, the copy edit to everything, everybody is championing that book. Yeah, you're right. It's, um, there's definitely people that I've encountered who are quite defensive about their work and they don't want anyone else to be involved. But if you're going to write fiction, like I said before, the reader is going to be involved in constructing the story. So there's always going to be collaboration, whether you like it or not. And so why not just lean into the collaboration and try and, get people to help you before it gets to the reader as well. Absolutely. We're out of time, Sean. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Sharon. And I'm so glad we we had that opportunity to meet and have dinner in Melbourne. Maybe when you're in Sydney next, we can meet up. I would love that. Absolutely. I can't wait. (laughs) All right. Take care. Thanks, Sharon. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.